0: who are joining our Wallace service or not a regular part of our community, thank you so much on behalf of our church family. We're very, very grateful that you've tuned in. Our message this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 5, narrowly on verses 8 and 9. We've looked at all of these verses prior to this, but let me read for us just to give a bit of a context beginning in verse 6 and then through 11. So this is the, the word of the Lord, 1 Peter Chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. and ever, amen. Well, I have two sermons left in my time with you as your interim pastor. We'll use these two sermons to finish 1 Peter. So let's ask, what actually have we learned studying this wonderful epistle? Well, at least this much. When you become a follower of Jesus Christ, relationships change you enter into new relationships some happy some hard think of some of the happy relationships you have a new relationship to God no longer is he judge he's your father you have a new relationship to the future you're awaiting the return of Jesus Christ and for paradise to come to the earth and you have a new relationship to other people. All of a sudden you have a family of brothers and sisters with those who also belong to Jesus in the church. Happy relationships. But when you become a follower of Jesus, you also have new relationships that are hard. You have a new relationship to the world. You may suffer persecution at the hands of those who don't understand who Jesus is. Peter's made clear you have a new relationship to sin. Sin is at war within you, trying to get the better of you. And you have a new relationship to the darkness. According to this text, the powers and principalities of the air, Satan, is trying to destroy you, devour you. So, Christian, cheer up. You're in an awful lot of conflict. But you are certainly without, not without, the hope and the resources for the conflict. God will supply absolutely everything you need and will see you through to the end. And it's in that sense that from the call to worship, God announces himself to his people as a shield, a fortress, a deliverer, a rock. God is on our side. We will fear nothing. So let's bear down on verses eight and nine, which focus on this conflict you have as a follower of Jesus with darkness. And Peter wants you to see that it's actually a form of suffering that all followers of Jesus all over the world experience. Look at verse nine, as he tells us to resist, he immediately goes into this thought, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, spiritual warfare, conflict with the devil is a form of suffering. You're experiencing that with those uh, with your brotherhood who are in the world. So, there's no other path to heaven, but through suffering and conflict, with trials, tribulations, not least the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places that are against you in this life. Perhaps Peter is echoing what we're told: the disciples, as churches were planted all over the ancient world. That we read in Acts 14, Paul and his compatriots went about strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What, therefore, should you expect in the Christian life? To be tempted and to be assaulted. What does Peter give you in that conflict? He identifies the enemy and he gives you a strategy to stay safe. Let's look at those two things. He identifies the enemy and then provides a strategy to stay safe in the conflict. Number one, the identity of the enemy. Why is that critical? You can't fight a foe you don't understand. Sports teams getting ready for a contest will study game film of their opponents to learn their tactics, their strategies, their style, to know how to best counter those. Well, the devil has a tendency, he has a style, he has a strategy, and the Bible exposes it so that knowing what he is like and what he does, you'll know what to expect in this conflict. Just for example, don't ever expect the devil to convince you how much God loves you. Don't ever expect the devil to convince you how precious you are to the kingdom of Christ. Don't ever expect the devil to urge you to humble other-centeredness. Don't ever expect the devil to motivate you to do everything in your life for the glory of God, or to pray more, or to trust God in your suffering. Don't expect that. So Peter exposes the enemy by naming him. Let's just work through these first phrases there in verse 8. He says, your adversary. That's the idea behind the word Satan. He's adversary. Think of the devil as working against you at every turn, and usually subtly, not something of Steven Spielberg's imagination. What's our first introduction to the work of the devil in the Bible? Genesis 3.1. Now, the serpent was more crafty. He works subtly and usually only as necessary. So if you're a person who is pressing hard into the heart of Jesus... Pressing hard into the kingdom of God, desiring fervently, consistently, to live for God, you will experience much more resistance than those who would sort of have just a kick-back-and-chill form of Christianity. The devil doesn't need to bother with those people. They're no threat to his kingdom. But the more serious you are about the health of your marriage, the more serious you are about sacrificial giving, the more serious you are about witnessing for Jesus, the more serious you are about studying your Bible, knowing Christ, glorifying him, the more intense the pressure will be, and it will be subtle as a rule. So Peter says, your adversary, the devil, the accuser. He has something to say about you, whether or not it's true. He brings charges. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about. So you think of those National Geographic films where they go to Africa and they find the, the lion, and here's the herd of the antelope over here. What's the lion doing? He's prowling, he's stealth. The lion that shows himself to the prey goes hungry. No, we're alert for covert operation with half-true pseudo-propositions. He is a great pretender, counterfeiting God's ways. Take, for example, just one thing. Peace. Peace of heart, peace of mind. There is something the Bible calls knowing the peace of God, knowing the peace of Christ. It's a good thing. It's the thing all of us want. We want kind of a settled sense in our souls. Everything's okay. Call it peace. Well, Satan can create a false sense of peace. One of the ways the prophets, the false prophets of the Old Testament were in error was telling the masses, the people, only what they wanted to hear. And so they were condemned this way, that the false prophets would say, peace, peace, where there is no peace, giving people a false assurance. Many decades ago, Janice and I were visiting a terminally terminally ill relative in northeast D.C. And she was lying there on her hospital bed, and I was wanting to move the conversation to the gospel, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but probably asked her something about whether or not she had peace with God, And sort of in an attempt of, I think, sort of cut off the conversation, she looked at me and said, I've made my peace with God. And that sort of ended the conversation, but what I was thinking was, I sure hope the peace you've made with God is on God's terms, not your own. Have you made peace with God on his terms or your own? The devil would have you find peace with God according to your own fashioning, your own liking, your own religion, your own ideas, versus the way God makes peace with fallen human beings through the warfare of his son, that Jesus Christ came to make peace with God by dying, the death, our sins deserve taking the punishment, a just punishment. God has against your sins? (laughs) Oh, God has made peace with us. He's reconciled us through the violent, horrific death of Jesus on the cross. That's the way you know you have peace with God. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. This lion imagery comes from different Old Testament passages. But what's the point of the roar? It's to intimidate. Come with me to Fort Worth, Texas. If you head south on University Boulevard from I-30, about a mile down on the left is the Fort Worth Zoo. We went there many times when we lived in Fort Worth. The zoo backs up to a very steep precipice made out of rock, and at the bottom of that is the lion's den, the place where the lions prowl about. Sometimes, even out on University Boulevard, way out of the zoo, outside of the zoo, You can hear the roar of the lion bounce off that and come out. And it's a little bit intimidating for a second to hear that roar until you realize, no, we're safe there in the zoo. We're safe outside. Beloved, the truth is no matter how much the evil one roars, Jesus Christ is the Lion of Judah. He is the true King of the forest. He is the only one to fear because Jesus alone has the power to cast body and soul into hell. Jesus alone is the one to honor as King of kings, Lord of lords, the mighty one, the victor, the one who has all authority in heaven and earth, whose one little word on that day will send the devil into the lake of fire. So Peter names the devil, and we know something of what he does by his name. Secondly, Peter gives us a strategy to to stay safe <laughs> stay safe yes that's a hard combination of words this morning so I want you to think of the roaring lion as tethered to a pole and he prowls around in a sphere you're keeping yourself out of that sphere and he only prowls as God limits C.S. Lewis in the screw, screw tape let, letter said we at our own peril make two mistakes thinking too much about the devil or not thinking enough. I think it was the great theologian Martin Luther who said the devil is God's devil. He ultimately does nothing that God does not allow. The Bible does not give us a dualistic uh, worldview as if there are two equally opposing forces, evil and good. No, God is absolutely sovereign. God has all the power, and whatever the devil does is absolutely limited. And yet he does wreak havoc in this world. 1 John 5:19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And what he does is only as God permits. So the idea is you stay out of his de- domain. You don't wander in his sphere. How, you may be wondering. Peter gives you two specific strategies. First he says in verse 9, resist, firm in your faith. We hear that resisting echoed also in James chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So there'll be times when attack comes pretty intense or acute on you, and you sense, wait a minute, this isn't coming from me. This is, this is coming from, from the darkness. Resist, resist, and it will let up. He will flee. What a wonderful promise. And in that context, James and Join just submit to God. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. So Peter calls you to resist. He doesn't say, Defeat the devil. That's not your job. You don't go after the evil one, looking for places that he's working. Jesus will one day defeat the devil. He's already crushed his head at the cross. The devil is a wounded foe seeking to wreak havoc as much as he can until his doom is finished. Resist, and we're not called to fear. John writes in 1 John 4:4, little children, you are from God. You have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So whenever you are cast into fear, terror, by the powers of darkness, tell yourself, oh, no, 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 no. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. So you take the devil seriously, you respect his power and his schemes, and you're not looking for reasons to excuse your sin as if the devil made me do it. Anytime we sin, we are absolutely responsible before God for that. So, his strategy? Resist. Hold your ground. This is the precious ground you have because... It's, as Peter will look at this actually next week in the final sermon where Peter says, Stand firm in the true grace of God. You have something to stand in that is more than able, more than abundant to keep you in this warfare. How do you resist? Well, you resist the same way Jesus resisted when he was tempted by the devil for 40 days at the beginning of his ministry. How did Jesus resist? He clung to the word of God. So ultimately, the only power to resist the devil... Is in this Holy Spirit using the word of, word of God to inform your faith and to fortify your faith. So it's not accidental that the first temptation in the history of the world was a temptation focused on the Word of God. When Satan came to Adam and Eve in the garden, the first thing he said was, Has God said? What was on trial in paradise? The Word of God. Has God said, and ever since, the devil has been waging a war against the veracity, the trustworthiness, the eternality of the word of God. So Peter says, resist firm in your faith. Firm in your faith. That's the ability to trust God, to lean on God, to look at his promises, to study who he is, and from that draw your sense of resilience, confidence, Standing firm. And remember that in the faith, in the Bible, faith always has a direct object. You have faith in something. Faith is informed, it's shaped, it has a specific content. And of course, we find that in the scriptures. So, someone once wrote this, and I found this very helpful. Weak doctrines are no match for strong temptations. That's why you're called to know the Bible, to know what it teaches. To take your knowledge of doctrine, that's simply what the Bible teaches you about various things, and to be ever increasing it, ever expanding it, ever bringing more and more light to bear in your heart and mind about who God says he is and what he does. The word of God, your relationship with the word of God. Faint legs will not outrun a ferocious foe. Good intentions cannot stand up against clever deceptions you're not going to defeat the devil with good intentions nor is sincerity itself sufficient because we can all be sincerely mistaken no we need firm faith in god's declaration of his ways his purposes his commands his grace found in the word and then the other strategy uh, peter says is be sober and be alert keep your mind completely under control of the truth at all times why Because the littlest bit of falsehood, just like one degree off on a compass, you set off on a course. If you're just on a course and you're off by one degree, eventually that one degree takes you incredibly far afield from your ultimate destination. One degree of falsehood you should be concerned about. One degree of falsehood hurting you. Therefore, you're a person whose ultimate defense is knowing The word of God. As Jesus himself used it in his temptation. In the wilderness against the devil. So resisting then. And being alert. Is largely dependent on identifying. uh, Positing what is true. Against the schemes of the devil. Twice Paul talks about this. In 2 Corinthians 2 he says. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not. Ignorant of his designs. The Greek word from which we get methods. Paul says we're not ignorant of the methods, the designs of the evil one. But are you? Do you know how he tries to get the better of you? Do you know how he tempts you? Do you know how his subtle and craftiness sort of works behind the scenes to bring you down, to push you off the firm foundation of faith in Jesus? Do you know that? We need to know that. And then the passage read earlier from Ephesians 6 on putting it on the putting on the armor of God. Paul writes that we, we are to stand firm against what? The schemes of the devil. So let's explore some schemes. There are many, many more we could explore. I'm just going to explore three as these schemes relate to his character. Okay? You can always expect the devil to operate in cons- consistent with who he is. So for example, and here are the three. He will destroy as a murderer. John 8, Jesus said, He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. This does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. The devil's goal is to destroy you no matter who you are. And that, for, that word destroy had to do with, in the ancient world, a ferocious beast that destroyed its prey, blood and all. I mean really devour, really destroy. When you woke up this morning... You had at least two enemies working against your welfare: indwelling sin on the inside, and the roaring lion on the outside. He wants to destroy you, and he never will. But he'll try. First John 5:18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of, born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Safe and secure in Jesus, nonetheless. The prowling lion is seeking to destroy you. We are grateful. We are confident. We put our hopes in. We rest in. We go to sleep in peace at night because Jesus Christ ultimately has defeated the devil. 1 John 3.8 Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Look at your life. <laughs> For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The devil. And since he can't destroy you, Jesus has you. He will tempt you and try to push you beyond your strengths, drag you down where you are weak. And it probably bears asking, you may be wondering, so why is Satan so angry with us human beings? Why does he have it in for those who belong to Jesus? That's a fair question. Satan hates all human beings because they bear the image of God. Don't take it personally. He just hates, hates God. And anything that reflects God hates it. Hates the environment because this whole creation reflects something of the glory of God. Hates human beings because they bear the image of God. And he has a special, ferocious hatred for Christians because you bear the image of the Son of God. Followers of Jesus have been remade by the Spirit of Jesus into the image of Jesus Christ and are being made. Look, if you belong to Jesus, you are beautiful to the Father. You are beautiful. Yes, I know you have all kinds of sin and struggles and frailty. God knows that. But the moment you believe in Christ and are united to Christ, something happens that makes you ravishingly beautiful in the eyes of the Father And Satan hates Christ, so he hates you. He hates you. He hates the Lord's Christ. He'll never destroy the Lord's Christ. He'll never destroy you, but he'll do all he can to diminish your enjoyment of him. And I think whenever Satan sees you, he's reminded that because you belong to Jesus, you're the work of Jesus, one day Jesus is going to put him into the lake of fire forever. Somehow he knows that, and his rage about that will be directed at you. Be assured of it. How does the devil destroy those apart from Christ? You may consider yourself an agnostic, an atheist. You, You may consider yourself not a follower of Jesus. You can be sure... That Satan will use some strategies to try to destroy you. One is, stay oblivious to the obvious. Stay oblivious to the obvious. What, what is the obvious? This whole world's created. You're created. Everything. Everything screams, design. Everything in this, in this created world screams an intelligent designer. We couldn't do science. We couldn't make sense of anything without realizing things work in this world because they're designed. Well, there is a designer. That is so obvious. And yet, Psalm 14 tells us the fool says, says in his heart, there is no God. So maybe you would, instead of resist the idea that there's a God, start resisting the idea that there is no God. And deal with the obvious. Any of uh, the pastors and leaders at Wallace would love to speak with you about what it would look like to think through embracing the obvious. This whole world was created by an intelligent designer God. And then very sadly, very tragically, the Bible is explicit that those who are apart from Jesus are being blinded by the evil one, the murderer, the liar, the deceiver, the accuser, the slanderer. They are being blinded specifically from understanding the gospel of Jesus. Here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. He has to defend his own ministry against detractors in Corinth who used underhanded means in their ministry. Here's what he says. He says, Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Here's a man who wants to ground everything in the Bible. and He wants his life to be a reflection of that same scripture. And he says in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, there are people who don't see it, who don't get it, who come to who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus even though there's preaching, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So, so, so if, if you know people who don't see the glory of Christ. Don't see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Don't understand the glory of Christ's gospel. It is ultimately because Satan is blinding them, keeping them, veiling that. Paul writes, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness. The creator God who brought everything into being by proclaiming it, speaking it, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul would say it's only the mercy of God, only the grace of God, that that veil has been removed from my eyes. It's only by God's kind, love, God's initiative, God's grace, that I'm not blinded to seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you are a person who sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, God has done that for you, and God will do that for you. If you want to see the glory of God, if you want to know Jesus, ask him now to deliver you, to take the veil off, to help you see, to help you understand. Ask him to transfer you out of darkness into light. He most certainly will. Now look, You need to have a test to see whether or not that's happened to you. So how do you know you understand the gospel, which is good news? It's simply this. The good news is God saves sinners through a substitute, not the sinner themselves. You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do to be right with God. It's not on you. It's not up to you. God saves sinners through a substitute. His name is Jesus. So in Jesus Christ, you find everything you need to be right with God. For example, are you relying on yourself to have your soul cleansed of sin, without which you'll never stand in the presence of God forever? Are you relying on yourself to be perfectly righteous, without which you'll never stand in the presence of God forever? Are you relying on yourself to be cleansed, to be forgiven, to be righteous? Jesus Christ gives himself to sinners for the cleansing of their souls and for the clothing of his righteousness so that in Jesus Christ you lack nothing to be right with God. That's the gospel. Isn't that good news? What you can't do, Jesus Christ has done for you. The inclination of the human heart, the impulse of all of our hearts in our natural state is to try to prove ourselves good enough for God. The gospel is, God's solution is, sinners are saved by the cross of his son. That's how God glorifies himself. He has no interest in seemingly being esteemed and glorified by the efforts of human beings trying to make themselves good enough for God. God is only glorified, only, through the substitutionary death of his son on the cross for sinners, and therefore now you know true religion from false religion. Any religion without the cross of Jesus at its center has missed the point. Could not possibly be a true religion. How could it be? What religion offers what Christianity and Jesus Christ exclusively offers? Desperate sinners. Jesus put it this way in John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one he has given, all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. There's one true religion on the face of the earth, It is the religion that honors the Son because all judgment has been given to the Son. And you either face Jesus as judge on that last day with terrible, terrible eternal consequences or you ask Jesus to be judged in your place on the cross to remove all the guilt of your sin at this moment to be saved by his grace and mercy. Second strategy, to distract as the deceiver. So what is deception all about? Deception is about appearances. This is what magicians do. They make something disappear that is or they make something appear that is not. The scripture tells us that the devil, 2 Corinthians 11:14, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's kind of scary. That means you could wake up one night and think you're seeing an angel of light in your bedroom, and oh my goodness, it's an angel of light. That could be Satan in disguise. So he masquerades quite effectively, he counterfeits extremely well. And I just tease out a couple ways appearances that might be demonic in nature will rob you of enjoying three things rob you of enjoying trusting God. For example, in your suffering, Satan would have you conclude that your suffering appears that God has forsaken you. My persecution, suffering, difficulties, this appears like God doesn't love me anymore, so I better take matters into my own hands. Now, that is the wrong conclusion from the appearance. All our suffering is to drive us to a faithful God, knowing He has us. How about appearance when it comes appearances when it comes to loving other people? It appears that they have lots and lots of faults. And compared to mine, it appears like it appears that mine are so minimal. Theirs appears so so much. <laughs> Well, don't trust appearances before you focus on their faults. Do a healthy inventory of all the things that are wrong with you. So appearances will keep you from loving people the way Jesus loves you. Seeing all your faults and yet he is committed to your welfare. And one other uh, way appearances Satan can deceive and disparage and distract through appearances. How about community? God wants you to enjoy community. Some of you think this, it appears that everyone else in church has their act together. It appears that everyone is much more holy than me. It appears that everyone is doing so much better than me. I'm the only person that struggles like this. And man, people would reject me if they really knew what I was like so don't let anyone in. Don't let anyone see your shame. Don't let anyone into your heart. And so the devil would rob you of enjoying community because the truth is, no matter what it appears, everyone else has as much sin to struggle with as you do. And this will be our, our final point, final strategy. The devil disparages as a liar. Jesus specifically in John eight forty four calls... Satan a liar, he says, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, we could make long lists of lies. Can't do that. Time doesn't permit. Uh, Let me uh, recommend to you a book by Phillips Brooks called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, where this, this wonderful, thoughtful theologian has taken all kinds of lies and strategies, and devices of the devil, and he gives you God's precious remedies against them. Wonderful uh, banner of truth, I think, cured in paperback. Great book. Precious remedies against Satan's devices, Phillips Brooks. So I want you to see, though, that the, the, the lies of the devil are purposeful, they're designed to do something. And not least this the, lie, the lies of the devil are designed to thwart what God cherishes. Why? The devil hates God. He correspondingly hates what God cherishes. So the devil will disparage you with lies that are very purposeful that will thwart the very things God cherishes. We could talk about a lot of things. God cherishes unity in the church. We don't have time to talk about that. God cherishes holiness among believers. We don't have time to talk about that. Quick sidebar in his book, Phillips Brooks, Precious Remedies, says Satan, to to diminish your love of holiness, you're cherishing it, he will paint sin in virtue's colors and paint uh, virtue as something undesirable. Just there you go, some of his strategies. So what is it that God cherishes that Satan would seek to thwart? You. You. If you belong to Jesus, God loves you. He cherishes you. He's for you. You're the apple of his eye. There's nothing more important in the universe to God than you. He's so committed to your welfare that he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So, how might Satan lie? To you to keep you from enjoying God, how might he thwart this truth that God absolutely cherishes you? Well, let's think of two extremes regarding your sin. One is basically downplay sin. You know, I'm I'm okay the way I am. Let your pride run out of control, let you have a self esteem that's based on your performance how people view you, your own estimation of you. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's the way of death. So at one extreme, Satan would have you think more highly of yourself than you ought to. At the other extreme, you can see it coming, he would have you think less of yourself than you should, and that would be to get you to focus excessively on your sin. You say, Mike, is that even possible? Yes, it is. Because if all you're doing is this inward nasal gaving look at how bad you are, how much you miss the mark, how, much, how big of a case Satan has against you, and how, how frequently you, you, your, your sin gets the better of you, and all you do is focus on sin, you've missed the point. No, no, no. God loves sinners. God rescues sinners from themselves. And some very wise theologians of old used to say this. For every one look you take at your sin, and you must because we live a life of repentance, and if we don't look at our sin, Satan will use that to destroy our joy, to destroy our confidence, to destroy our love of others, our service of God. Satan will use it. You must look at your sin, but for every one look you take at your sins, take 10 looks at Jesus, and what will happen? He will become ravishingly beautiful to you. You will esteem Jesus as the most beautiful, wonderful person in the world. And you will want to love him, trust him, serve him, and love others the way Jesus has loved you. So, when you get that email in your inbox from Satan and it says in the title, we're going to talk about your sin, you delete it You send the devil to Jesus if he wants to discuss your sin with you. Never ever get into a dialogue with the evil one about how you've missed the mark. Jesus is all too willing to enter into that dialogue with you. And he will point you to his cross to show you how much he loves you and what he did to give you freedom from that sin, cleansing from it, and power through his resurrection to fight it and the devil for the rest of your days. For every look you take at your sin, whenever you're in conflict with darkness, look to Jesus, the Lord of glory, the light of the world, the King of kings, the Prince of peace, the one who defeated him. Our victor, our Jesus, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might defeat the works of the devil. So we glory in Jesus every moment, every day. And let's pray. Oh, Father, we are in a battle. It's fierce. It's more contentious than than we know. And we confess to you that we often fall. We're easily duped. Uh, we, We don't have anything on the craftiness of the evil one. But thank you that what we have is the word of truth, the light of the word. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit. We have a crucified, risen, reigning Jesus who is for us, who has made us the apple of his eye, who absolutely cherishes us as his treasured, precious possession. Oh, to know that love and thereby be rescued from schemes, from deceit, from lies, from the murderer. Thank you, Jesus. We have all we need in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your victory. In your name we pray. Amen. So we'll respond as Andy and the praise team.